Today's episode features Olivia Fernandez, a Canadian Landmine Foundation board member and expert in humanitarian relief and development work. I've brought her on to explain some of the practical connections between demining and other pillars of the humanitarian agenda, including education, gender equity, and program integration. Mine action, after all, is more than simply removing explosives from the ground. Olivia has spent years working for non-government humanitarian organizations, including Save the Children and Amnesty International. She has managed emergency response projects in Somalia, Kenya, Nepal, and Vietnam, and is intimately familiar with the disastrous consequences of landmine contamination in conflict zones and or following natural catastrophes. Additionally, she's an active board member of the Canadian Landmine Foundation and a passionate advocate for the rights of children and women in all contexts. Hello, and welcome to the sixth episode of The Diffuser. My name is Paul Esau, and today I'm hosting Olivia Fernandez in a conversation about mine risk education, the gendered aspects of demining, and the impact of mine contamination upon humanitarian work. Olivia, welcome to The Diffuser. It's great to have you on. Thanks so much, Paul. It's uh, an honor to be here. Very humbling after a long time, too. Yeah, we've been trying to do this for quite a while. I think since mid-December. And uh, (laughs) we just have not been able to finally make it happen together. But we're here in the same room in studio and we can finally talk. And we're ready. Ready to rock and roll. So one thing that I should address up front is that we wrote these questions, obviously, when you were working in a certain role. And now you've actually transitioned. So you're working with Save the Children, and you, maybe you can talk a bit about kind of what your what your responsibilities there were there in the case files that you have, and also a bit about now kind of where you've moved to. So sure. what has happened in your life, Olivia? Well, in the last four and a half years, I have been working with Save the Children, which is the world's leading organization uh, for upholding children's rights uh, all over the world. And... Uh, it's a great organization that makes sure that children are safe, have the opportunity to learn and survive um, so that they can thrive in their life. Mm, they believe that every child has um, deserves a chance to build their own future and that we need to work with them as adults to uphold that. Uh, so in the last four and a half years, I've had the honor of working with Save the Children in various capacities in their uh, national reconciliation program and as well as their uh, international programs most recently. Within the reconciliation program, I traveled all over Canada uh, implementing emergency preparedness and disaster risk reduction programming for children in remote reservations and then switched over to the international programs where I started to manage uh, complex humanitarian emergencies that are funded by Global Affairs Canada and flowed through Save the Children. In the two and a half years in the international programs team, I managed about, opened and closed about 22 programs worth $25 million. And here we are today moving into um, a new role at World Vision 
uh, very excited to do very much the same work, but be more involved in the proposal design process where we can um, really think about how mine action is uh, going to be integrated in these programs. And that's definitely what I want to talk to you about today is how I uh, mine action issues and demining issues have impacted your development work and your relief work. But uh, I think you've mentioned to me before how you've worked on several specific projects around the world in the Horn of Africa, in Uganda, uh, maybe in other parts of the world as well. Can you talk a bit about specifically about which programs you have managed over those 25 projects that you mentioned that you have been part of at uh, Save the Children um, in, in your past? Sure. Um, I started out my career actually in Northern Ontario, living in a reservation for six months. It was Wapakika First Nation, uh, right, right by the Manitoba border, right up there. And then I moved to Vietnam for two and a half years, and that's where I started my, um, it's not two and a half years, I'm sorry. I moved to Vietnam for two years, and that's where I started my mine action work. Um, I lived in the cent- a central province called Quang Tri, and it holds the DMZ zone, which divided the country between north and south during the war. Uh, 83% of the land in that province was contaminated when I lived there. So the mine action work was post-conflict recovery uh, through all five pillars of mine action. And um, it was my intro first-hand field experience into what humanitarian mine action is and why it's so important, understanding the scope of how one single accident and one person's life will transform the life of an entire community. And we really have a responsibility to make sure that people are educated to stay safe from landmines and to know where they are, to know how to report them, and, and really... In that experience, I saw how comprehensive mine action programming is and how tangible the results are. And that really spoke to me. Vietnam was my first experience. I kept on with mine action through the Landmine Foundation, actually, as I continued my role at Save the Children in the Indigenous program. As I built into the international programs, I got to see... um, what activities are and aren't happening within the sector. And I did notice that um, mine action is an underfunded area, to say the least. Um, it's really hard to build a case for it, especially during an active conflict. It's, it's hard to sh- almost show the stats when they're not available in time. Because when we write a humanitarian proposal, that's coming in at like within days of a crisis occurring. And for us to understand what the mine action statistics might be or what kind of IEDs are being used is almost impossible without a central coordination mechanism uh, to kind of hold that information and share it out with proposal writers and developers in time to design those projects. So that's what I got to see from um, a project management perspective. And I'm really excited to move into a role where we would be able to kind of um, outline this and build a case for support and kind of from my avenue outside of the work that I do as a project manager, but inside the work I do as a humanitarian mine action expert to bring those two worlds together and see how we can coordinate better to involve uh, mine action activities within proposal design so that we can actually implement them on the ground. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that before. So what you're saying kind of in two ways, that you believe that mine action is deeply, deeply important 
to development Absolutely. and relief work. And second of all, it's actually very difficult to fund for fund because it's hard to have quantitative stats for the impact of uh, mines and IEDs on the ground. Now, let me talk a bit more perhaps about both of those uh, two aspects of this question. Sure. Okay. So we'll start with the first one, which is uh, the importance of mine action work within the sector, within the emergency sector. Okay. So as we're moving into more of a time where conflict is being decentralized and there's a lot of um, rebel militias, the ability to track the use of IEDs is limited, but their presence is increasing and their um, ambiguity is also increasing. So their the ability to identify them is even becoming problematic. So how do we then build a case for support to governments to fund risk education activities without understanding what's going on on the ground? and how they're being used. It's impossible to tell people who don't know that type of information without actually being able to tangibly show them, hey, this IED looks like a doll. We need to educate, as part of our programming, we want to educate children on why, um, what to do in case they see something like this, why they shouldn't pick it up. But how do we know what type of case to build? Because it's so... Um, the word I'm looking for is contextual. It's so dependent on the context. You need to know what's happening and what the context is for the use of those instruments before you build the proposal. It's kind of like a chicken and egg situation. Is how do we, which one do we address and how do we address it first? But we need to get funding to be able to address it. But how do we then find out what's there? So it's really important to have because um, the Landmine Monitor re recently released a report with the impacts of ERWs and IEDs on children globally. And I looked at the information in the monitor and saw that all the programs that I manage, all the regional programs I manage, are those, re those exact regions have been impacted. But then when I looked at um, the humanitarian overview the GHO, Global Humanitarian Overview, back in December, those very same countries lacked the information that was in the monitor. So even in terms of centralization of information, when I build a proposal, if I look at the GHO and don't look at the landmine monitor, I'll be missing critical information. But I know that as a landmine, as an HMA expert. But how many other proposal developers are HMA experts? Right to be able to consider looking into the um, the monitor's data, so we need to think about how we're going to coordinate that better. One thing I find interesting in that answer, or I really actually appreciate about that answer, is the fact that you really consider it sounds like mine risk education to be as critical, if not more critical, than the actual demining work. It's very demoralizing to be funding demining work in an active conflict zone because it'll take you thousands and thousands of dollars to be able to demine a very small area. And if mines are being planted in other areas at the same time, mm -hmm. like for pennies in the dollar, because it costs three or four dollars a landmine in most cases, and you're being planted by often child soldiers or untrained militia, uh, like the cost-benefit analysis is not very good for demining. But in terms of mine risk education, and this is one thing that actually our EOD team right now that we sponsor as the foundation in Cambodia does, is education to children and to adults about the dangers of landmines and how to report them. Oh, also EODs as well. How to, how to report them, how to recognize them, what to do if you do, if you do see 
one, um, that becomes a deeply important way to minimize casualties. So I think like as someone who is learning about landmines but is not an expert in the field, I've always considered the demining to be more important than miners' education because it's a permanent solution. But I think that what you're talking about in terms of your work is how deeply important as part of uh, mine action um, protocols education actually is. Can you speak a, mo- a little bit more about like the success stories and the ways in which you've personally uh, in your work uh, been able to implement mine risk education and how, how it's impacted uh, the teams that you work with around the world? Sure. Um, well, my most impactful mine risk education experience was watching the teams in Vietnam uh, carry out risk education activities in really remote communities. Because the access to technology is so limited in those areas, what they did was actually really genius. Uh, they, they did one thing that brought the community together in such a collaborative way and such a participatory way. And what, what it was, was they had children perform risk education activities at a school play. And to the extent where children dressed up as their parents and uh, during the play brought in fake ERWs and missiles and mortar shells and were sawing them open as they have seen people in their communities doing. And then you have someone else come running in and say, hey, that's dangerous and this is why. And they, they do a couple of different scenarios demonstrating why... Um, why it's so dangerous to bring these home. And this is particularly important because of the way they contextualize the information. In the remote communities in Vietnam, where people can't afford to feed their families, farmers are out there in those rice fields looking for unexploded ordnance so that they can blow it up and sell it for scrap metal, making the difference between food on the the table and no food on the table. So it's really an economic venture. And then you can clearly see how mine action is even affecting the livelihoods of these people because their fields are contaminated. But on the other side is look at what communities have to do in order to spread these messages and how innovative and ingenious they're being. So the whole community, because there's... There's not a lot of socialization going on. There's not a lot of activity. The whole community comes to watch these plays, and they hold them on multiple sessions. And it really does work because it's spreading the message to the whole community and creating an accountability system where they can say to each other, hey, you know, last week we saw that in the play, and you know that it's not okay. So what can we do? And it makes the community think also about their livelihoods, future thinking. Like, if we can't feed our families and this is what we're resorting to, what are we going to do next? And how can we call on the international community to help us? It's empowering communities in a different way. That is, by far, how I see risk education being run globally. Hmm. Yeah, I actually, I mean, in the OD teams that we sponsor, often they're showing photos of themselves uh, doing education for children. I thought it kind of was a thing that you would do for children in the community. It was the adults already understood, already 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 knew um, how to deal with EODs and landmines in this way. But you know, you're opening my eyes to the fact that often this is an essential asset in education for the adults as well for the community as a whole. Absolutely, especially as uh, education is now the forefront of humanitarian and development work. More and more children are being educated, whereas their parents might not have been at all. So that's why we really look to children to spread these messages, because 
in every sense, they are the future. So one thing that I've also heard you talk quite a bit about in the anecdotes that you've told me about your work with Save the Children primarily, but you've been working in now with uh, World Vision as well, is the fact that a lot of uh, demining and mine action is now working to also include uh, aspects of gender as well as uh, other vulnerable communities like children, yes. um, as you just talked about in their work. So you've done a lot of, I think you have a lot of personal passion. You've also done a lot of work trying to include uh, women within demining teams and more important roles. You've talked about some of the struggles of that actually as well, I believe, in places around the world. So can I uh, just ask you kind of uh, can I tell you a bit about your experience trying to create a more uh, equitable atmosphere for women within the demining, uh, within these demining projects and minor education projects around the world? Um, the mine, the humanitarian mine action sector has really opened my eyes up to gender equality in terms of how inclusive the sector itself has been on gender equality principles. Um, and, and really actively fighting against uh, the patriarchy in that sense. And I, I was quite surprised to see it myself because I didn't realize how many gender stereotypes I held. Because personally, I would not want to be, pr prior to this work and being exposed to being in the field, I would have never wanted to be out in the field detonating things. But w once I saw how important it was, it really spoke to me. And it's not like, it's not about a, a machismo thing versus a feminine thing. It's about keeping people safe. And I really think that um, humanitarian mind action has hit the nail right on the head and is really going through all five pillars of mind action and through a gender neutral lens, which is really uh, important. And not gender neutral, actually, gender transformative lens. And that's really... Um, key for being able to understand that women don't just belong in administrative positions and men don't just belong in operation and field positions. Like both belong together in, in both of those areas because we balance each other out. We think differently, we work well together. It's it's um really it's really interesting to see the perceptions of males and females in the field, but the the toughness does not um, waver because of the gender at all. And that is fantastic. Like I know in Vietnam, we our EOD team leader is a woman named Lynn. And she you, is the most unassuming person. You would never think she'd be leading the teams. And she is so educated on weapons and how, and how to detonate them, how to work with them, how to educate her teams, how to work with... It's its absolutely incredible. And then if you go to her desk, you'll see a little balmy that's uh, free from explosives with flowers in them. It's like, it's its a really cool to see um, just how how they've done it. I'm, uh, I'm inspired by how humanitarian mind action has integrated gender transformative change into its, not just its field operations and for the beneficiaries, but into its administrative processes also, which is where a lot of organizations have trouble integrating gender transformative change. And is that often because of pushes from the NGOs that are funding or because of kind of grassroots pushes from below? You've talked a bit, I think, in the past to me about situations where you've had teams where uh, you'll be on conference calls with the team, and only the male members of the team will actually talk. 
And you've kind of had to, as a person who's helping organize these things, encourage the female members as well to take positions of responsibility, be a little more active, and exert some agency in terms of their understanding and their position within the team. Certainly. Perspective is really important, and it's really, regardless of who wasn't at the table, if it was a man or a woman, I would want all my team there, because all their multiple perspectives matter. Um, but when it is when it is gendered, it, sometimes it's hard not to take it personally as a female who, who works in the sector. But the importance there, what I drive home, is that everybody's voice is important, regardless. We want to hear everybody's voice at the table, so bring it all together because we need collaboration for this to work. It's interesting how you become not only kind of a team leader overseer for these various files, but also a bit of an advocate in certain ways as well. Whether or not you actually want to be, yeah, you're kind of stuck to it. Yeah, it's true. It's true. A couple of minutes ago now, you mentioned in passing the five pillars of mine action. And you kind of like just breeze through that. And as an expert in the field, I mean, you're, you know, obviously what these things are. For those who are listening to us who don't know what the five pillars are, uh, can you explain briefly what the five pillars of mine action are? Absolutely. So the first pillar is survey. So surveys look at, there's technical surveys and non-technical surveys. And basically the objective of a survey is to figure out where the ordinance is. That's what we want to know. Where is it? So that we can then go into pillar number two, which is clearance. Once we know where it is, we can decide whether we need to clear it on the spot or move it to another uh, location where it would be safer to detonate. The next pillar is risk education, which is keeping communities informed on how to go about um, their daily lives with the presence of ordinance around them all the time. Uh, the objective of risk education is really to proactively keep people safe so that they can really keep own their own safety in that sense. Um, victim assistance, which is really important uh, and very important to be funded as well, looks at what happens to people after they have been impacted by a landmine. Not just people, but families. Like, how do you continue life beyond that? And what kind of supports can the sector provide to you so that you can live your life to the best degree possible? And then we have stockpile destruction, which is an advocacy uh, mechanism within the sector, and that's mainly putting accountability on governments uh, that are states party to the mine ban convention to, for them to get rid of their stockpiles. Okay, thank you very much. Now, as an expert in the field, someone who's been in this field now for a number of years, lived all over the world, seen uh, mostly the good side, but also occasionally some challenges involved in NGO relief work and mine action, um, how can humanitarian development programming be tweaked, in your opinion, to better incorporate mine action? Do you have like a three or four step Olivia Fernandez action plan that you can just lay out for us here? I wish it was an Olivia Fernandez action plan, but I think it, I would like to call it the International Mine Risk Education Working Group's action plan. I consulted with them quite a bit on this question, and it really boils down to coordination um, between humanitarian mine action data and, and the rest of the uh, humanitarian and development sector. How do we coordinate to share relevant information with the people who are developing the modalities to fund operations in these countries? That is really where I feel um, we are unable, we, we haven't done the best job actionizing that. And if we could do a solid um, piece on coordinating, it would be extremely beneficial. That's what I, that's my personal plan. 
is okay. to start working on a coordination mechanism so that we can have this integrated into each other. And I'm kind of my own pilot project on this. So it, the next year should be a little bit interesting to see how it goes. Well, yeah, we look forward to, I mean, I hear the foundation look forward to seeing what you do and where you're going and the success stories that you are able to help, you know, facilitate out of that. I mean, uh, yes. you've done a lot of very exciting work over the years and we love obviously hearing from you whenever you uh, have stories to report. But thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Olivia. It's always good to hear from someone in the trenches. And uh, yeah, I just really appreciate your perspective on both the importance of children and of gender in minor risk education and also the ways in which our development uh, could be further co coordinated to create a better kind of uh, mine risk or mine action uh, front around the world. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. That was, uh, it's an honor to be interviewed. It's so great to be able to share this information in a way that uh, hopefully people can relate to. And if they have questions to come back to the foundation, I'd be happy to answer them and carry work forward in as much of a collaborative and participatory way. Because the only way we're going to get through this is together. And congratulations on your new job. And you're starting on Monday, I believe, Tuesday. right? I'm Tuesday. I'm real excited. Thank you so much. This podcast is a product of the Canadian Landmine Foundation, in cooperation with the Laurier Centre for Military, Strategic, and Disarmament Studies. Our music was produced by Paul McLeod.